Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus for the word of God. We thank you for the extraordinary, extravagant, infinitely glorious leadership of Jesus. And we ask, I ask you, Lord, to touch us, Holy Spirit, with new insight about him and what he's planned for us and what we're going to do together with him. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, that typically, I, I was thinking, and I worked on it today, John 17, as the ultimate apostolic prayer, the teaching of Jesus. But in the spring, we're going to look at John 13 to 17, and I thought, at 4 o'clock, I go, you know what? I'm going to shift gears. And I made this handout earlier just because I liked it. I didn't even make it for a message. I just make it because I love to make handouts. That's, some people are like that. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to share it. I'm going to share it. I want to stir your holy imagination. You know, and the reason I got into this, besides it's biblical, the reason is because the last year in the COVID, I just said, Lord, I know where my great escape is in my mind and emotions. I escape, I close my eyes, and I go to that place with him. And, oh, I love your leadership. I love what we're going to do together. Uh, and I come back, and oh, yeah, and then there's all this stuff going around. And then I go get that, that well, escape is the wrong word, but it's kind of the right word. It's that enter into that other place. And I thought, why don't I just share it with them and uh, stir you up to do this as well, to just go somewhere glorious in your mind over these next few weeks with the Lord, and of course, long, before, long beyond the next few weeks. Well, we're going to start with a Christmas verse. So it's perfect because Christmas is this week. Coming up next week, this week, something, week, from, week from today, there you go. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. That's what we're going to look on, his government. His name will be called Wonderful. That's the other phrase or word I want to focus, Wonderful. This is indescribably wonderful. Well, all of his names are, but I wanted to touch that one. Wonderful. And as we go through some of these verses, it's you are marvelous in your leadership. Well, his name is also Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those are glorious in themselves. But here's the key phrase. Of the increase of his government, there'll be no end. Upon the throne of David, to establish it, to order it from that time forevermore. Here's the idea. How is it that his government... Jesus has could increase for billions of years. I mean, isn't there a time when he covers the whole earth with his glory and the Father's presence comes down to the earth as throne at the end of the, of the millennial kingdom and the new earth and his manifest glory is everywhere. But then for billions of years, his, in, his government keeps increasing. Where? How? And we're a part of it. And there's a human process, notice in verse 7, that it's going to increase, and it's going to, his government will have no end to order it and establish it. Those two words, those phrases. There's going to be a human involvement in ordering and establishing his government, and it's going to take new ground and take new ground and new ground. Where's the new ground 
that we're going to be a part of, that there's going to be a human process of establishing together with him the increase of his government in a way that's manifest, here's it, in the natural realm. Because his government as a man, it's on the throne of David. It's, a, it's the son of David. It's a human king. Now, we know he's fully divine. But he's a human king with a human government that's manifest in the natural realm. And it constantly is increasing. And there's a human participation in ordering it and establishing it. Paragraph B, Psalm 132 makes the same point. It says, I will make the, the horn of David. The horn means the authority. The horn of David meant the son of David, his, his future grandson, Jesus, the heir of the throne of David. It's going to grow. How does Jesus' leadership grow and increase in the natural realm when the whole earth is filled with his glory? Where, where how, when? Paragraph C, we can easily imagine how his government grows in this age. I mean, we're believing God for a billion soul harvest. That means there's a billion people, that's not an actual number, but I think it's more than that, actually. His government will be in their life, so his government increases right there in other ways as well. That's pretty easy to understand. Then in the millennial kingdom, during the thousand-year reign, Every city, well, every sphere of society in every city will embrace his leadership fully. So we can see his government increasing in the millennial kingdom and all the institutions of society and all the people and learning the word of God as it comes out of Jerusalem. Paragraph D, the challenge comes next. How does his government continue to increase? In the natural realm, that's the key phrase, because he's a human king with a human government that's seen in the natural realm. When there's the new earth, when the new earth comes after the millennial kingdom, after a thousand years of Jesus reigning, the new earth is established, and the Father's throne comes down to the new earth. Can you imagine God, the Father's throne, on the earth? And the implication is, is this, intense spirit of glory and blessing covering the whole earth. Righteousness is everywhere. There is no devil. Everyone has resurrected bodies. There is no sin. Well, we got billions of years to go. And Jesus' government is going to keep increasing through and with the saints. This is your story, actually. This is the Christmas story Take it to the next level. <laughs> Paragraph F. Well, here's the <clears throat> foundational idea you got to launch from this idea. <clears throat> Paul said it. We're going to quote this verse a few times. I love this verse. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it's talking about the hidden wisdom of God when you read the whole passage. Hidden wisdom, meaning it's a plan that was held back from the understanding of the human race, even from the angels. They didn't even fully understand it. There's hidden wisdom, and God ordained this hidden plan. Catch this, verse 7, jump right in there. He ordained it before the ages. 
The Father says, I have a hidden plan. I'm not going to tell the human race, and I'm not going to tell the angels. I'll give hints. But I want you to know this. I planned it before Genesis chapter 1. It's not a secondary plan. It's not plan B. It's plan A. And I want you to know it's for the glory of my people. Well, Lord, we just want it for your glory. The Lord says, don't worry. I'm real secure. I'm good. No one's going to worship you, but I want you living in glory beyond anything you could imagine forever. That's the Father's plan for you. He says, just so you know, this plan is hidden. Again, when you read the whole verse, it's, it's concealed. It's been uh, uh, hidden from the view of angels and of humans. Paul said, just so you know, eye has not seen. No one's ever had a vision of it, of the fullness of any of this. Little hints of it. John the Apostle saw the, you know, the New Jerusalem, just a hint of it. Ear has not heard. It's never, the story's never been told by a prophet or an angel in any kind of fullness. It's never been heard. The story's never been heard. Well, it's more intense than that. The plan is so glorious, it's never entered the heart of a human. The things that God ordained or planned before Genesis 1 for you. It's never entered your heart. So whatever ideas that I suggest tonight, and I'm not going to make any, I'm not going to make dogmatic statements. I'm taking biblical hints because the, the scripture is not explicit on the details. And as a Bible teacher, I don't want to be dogmatic where the scripture isn't. But there's biblical hints, and those biblical hints do not forbid us thinking along certain lines, but you can't be dogmatic. You can't call it a, a, a primary teaching or anything like that. But here's the good news. Whatever I'm imagining, Paul said, sorry, little guy, it's way beyond anything you could think of. So I've, I'm going to present some pretty big ideas. But I assure you, the plan is far bigger than what I'm suggesting. I want to stir your holy imagination. Again, and all the COVID and all the troubles and the strife and the elections and the, the social stuff and the cultural wars, I just like to go, Jesus, your leadership. Whoa, doing it together forever. Wow. Oh, yeah, okay. We got stuff we got to do right now, but... That's called meditation. That's called the joy of the Lord in our hearts. Paragraph one, I've already said it, but there are a few hints in Scripture, and those hints are meant to be looked at. And those hints have implications. Those hints provoke us to think beyond what we can really grasp with certainty. We can't say this for certain and certainty, but we know it's in this sort of direction. Paragraph two, can be dogmatic, but I can assure you one thing, the plan will be fascinating when it unfolds in front of your eyes one day. His name is called Wonderful. His plan will absolutely fill you with marvel, awe, and wonder. Well, paragraph G, we're going to get to some of the, right, I'm going to give you some of the scriptural hints right off the bat. Revelation chapter 22, 
the final five verses, Revelation 22, one to five, and the final five verses of the biblical narrative of the salvation story. It ends in chapter 22, one to five, and then after that's kind of like a prologue, it's kind of John's making some comments on the book, but the story ends, chapter 22, verse one to five. How does God end the salvation narrative in the whole Bible? Well, these five verses. And in these five verses, we're gonna look at them in a moment, John is gonna highlight three supernatural elements. There's supernatural light, far beyond natural light, has supernatural qualities. There's supernatural water, called the water of life. Natural water has healing properties and life-enhancing properties, but the water of life is at a whole nother level. And there's the tree of life that has its fruits, its leaves, its seeds, and fruit and trees, they enhance life in the natural, but this is a whole nother level. Three components that are mentioned together. Supernatural light, supernatural water, supernatural trees, if you wanna get right down to it, seeds that will multiply in, in, in its like kind, producing this superfood in all kinds of diversity. And then right after that, it says in verse five, it ends the whole story, these three things are put in context with the rule of the saints. They will reign forever in context of these three things. Okay, let's turn to page two. Now we're gonna look at the verse, but I just wanted to kinda tell you what I'm gonna tell you and then I'm gonna tell it to you. Paragraph A. The new Jerusalem is energized by this divine life that's imparted by the Spirit, and there's three supernatural elements. I'm not saying it's limited to these three, but these are the three that are highlighted in the biblical narrative to end the testimony of the Scripture about salvation. Verse one, he saw a river of life. Verse two, on both sides of the river, there was a tree of life. Now when it says river of a water of life, a river of water of life and tree of life, there's a supernatural divine quality to it far beyond natural water and natural trees. Again, with their leaves, with their, with their seeds, with their fruits, etc. This tree of life bore 12 types of fruits. I mean, we're talking about tasty beyond measure. And probably when you mix and match the 12, they probably come up with a thousand other combinations. You know, put a little of this of that one, squeeze a little of that one in there, and who knows? John says, I want you to know the leaves from the tree of life, well, in the New Jerusalem, will actually bring healing to the millennial nations because the nations don't need healing after the millennium. So we find out, we'll look at it in a moment, just a verse or two before this, the kings of the millennial earth go into the new Jerusalem to present their honor and the, the glory of their nations, their gifts to Jesus. My assumption, to me it seems clear, the leaves, they take them back with them when they come and present their offerings to the Lord, literally in the new Jerusalem. 
Because the new Jerusalem at the time of the second coming descends to a place of proximity to the earth. It's not on the earth, but it's in close proximity. That's another subject for another time. The kings of the earth have access to go into it. So it's close enough to the earth where they can go into it. And Jesus' throne is in the new Jerusalem, and Jesus' throne is in the millennial Jerusalem. It's one, I call it, vast governmental complex that's all connected together. Another subject for another time. But the kings get to go in there, and they give their offerings, the glory of their nations. They submit it to Jesus. They give it to him. And I assume if those leaves are going to heal nations, the kings take them back to their nations. How do they heal the nations? I think these, these, they, these leaves have supernatural properties in them because they're from the tree of life. Now this part, you just got to, again, I, I'm, I'm just suggesting this. I'm not saying this is a doctrine. They take those leaves and they mix them and match them. They crunch them up. They put them in the water. They put them in the soil. They put them everywhere and they multiply and spread the influence. It changes the agriculture. It changes the soil. It, bring, it produces superfoods. It brings healing to physical bodies, healing to animals, and it changes the atmosphere. These leaves, the implications of taking these leaves back with them, brings healing literally to nations. Because remember, there's no need for healing of the nations after the millennium. And verse 5, it doesn't end with water and trees or leaves and seeds and fruits. And I like to target the seeds because that's how I believe it. That's how I assume, I'll rather say it that way, that it will multiply and fill the whole earth with the Garden of Eden conditions through the thousand years of the millennium. The whole earth will progressively become more and more like the Garden of Eden through this water, through these leaves, but there's a light that shines that is so superior to natural light, and natural light's glorious. Natural light enhances life processes, we know. I mean, essential to life, essential to healing, natural life, light. But this light is so superior to natural light that there's no need for the natural light. And it's not just the illumination of it, but the healing life-enhancing processes of the light as well. But look how the, the narrative ends. I mean, this is like you can't imagine the story would end with this verse. And the saints rule forever. Like, that's how you're ending it? And the Father says, yes, I planned this before Genesis 1 for your glory. And these three components, I'm assuming, I'm not, again, being dogmatic, but... The hints, they're all there, and it's in context to the rule of the saints forever. I think the saints have access to these three supernatural components in the millennium for sure, and then after the millennium as well. Well, the sal salvation narrative, it ends with this, these five verses. This is how the story of salvation ends in the Bible. Wow, what a coming to a crescendo. And it's the Father's desire and the Son's desire that the saints would enter into the spirit of glory in their own lives. And they would, in their resurrected bodies, but more than that, what they do and how they interact and the work they do ruling with them forever, it has glory, every dimension of it. Well, Jesus started the book of Revelation talking about the saints ruling. He said in chapter 3, verse 21, I mean, chapter 3, verse 21 is just, 
I mean, honestly, it's just almost unthinkable. Only Jesus has the authority to say chapter 3, verse 21. Jesus said, if they overcome, they'll sit with me on my throne. It's almost like you go, who said that, Paul? Don't ever say that, Paul. Nobody sits on the Messiah's throne besides him or shares it. Jesus said, I'm saying it. He's the only one Paul said, well, we sit in heavenly places. He said, you know, I, I'm just making this part up, but kind of like Paul said, I can't go to the next level. I, I actually know a little bit more, but I no. Jesus has to say it. It's his throne. Can you fathom what is in store for your life for billions of years? Well, let's look at each one of these three elements. Kind of rapid fire look at them. The light of life. Now, again, natural sun not only illuminates, which is essential for life, but it enhances life itself and healing and growth. Natural light is powerful. What a gift natural light is. But this light, the light of life, it emanates out of Jesus' being. Look at chapter 21, verse 23. Comes out of the Lamb. What? I, oh, we don't know how that all works. Oh, we just know it's true. Look at John 8, verse 12. Jesus is talking. He says, I'm the light of the world. They're going, oh, that's right. You inspire our understanding. He goes, you have no idea what I just said. I am the light of life. I mean, none of the apostles understood him. The angels didn't fully even understand. He goes, you, I can imagine. You have no idea what I just told you, who I am, and the light you're going to have walk in and be a part of for billions of years. It's like the water of life and the tree of life. It's the light of life. It's a supernatural divine component to it. Paragraph C. Well, let's go to the next element, the tree of life. There's three of them, the light, the trees, and the water. We already mentioned in Revelation 22, too, we just read it, that the trees produce 12 types of fruits, and I'm assuming you mix and match them together even with other kinds of natural foods and have incredible diversity out of the 12 mixed and matched in all kinds of combination, even with natural foods as well. That's a guess. Again, this is speculation. It's holy, I call it stirring up your holy imagination. Nothing in the Bible's against it, you just can't be dogmatic about it. All you know is that God is really creative and he really likes us. And he goes, those 12, I think, well, I'll have one, you know, a week and try to not get tired of them after a couple thousand years. He goes, no, the combinations will blow your mind. We have combinations of food in the natural, right? We put this with that and this with that and cook it a little while and put some more stuff on it. At least that's what they tell me. Well, I gave, I'm putting the verse here, paragraph C, how the kings of the earth, the millennial kings in Revelation 21, 24, they go into the new Jerusalem. I just want you to know that's biblical. They bring their gifts. Now, it's my assumption they bring the leaves back with them because the leaves heal their nations. 
I can imagine the king coming back to one of the nations and his cabinet, you know, his presidential cabinet, his kingly court. Did you get the leaves? <laughs> oh, yeah, I got a bunch of them. How many did you get? Did you get more than that other nation? No, don't worry about it. They multiply real fast. They're really powerful. Once you mix it into the soil, you mix it into the foods, you mix it into the water supply, it has a life of its own. It's dynamic in how its influence spreads. Again, I'm just throwing a little bit of my own ideas in there. But I know one thing. If my ideas, if they're like, there's some glory, Paul says, you don't even have the beginning of the beginning of how glorious it is. So whatever, whatever I'm saying is way lower than what's gonna actually happen. The water of life. Well, again, natural water, <laughs> clean water, is so obviously essential for life and for physical healing and for productivity and growth. Ezekiel has a vision in the millennium. He sees the millennium, I mean. And he sees the millennial temple. And Jesus' throne is in context to the millennial temple. Again, his throne is in the new Jerusalem. His throne is in the millennial Jerusalem in the temple. And they're connected in a dynamic convergence together. One, like somebody says, is it one throne or two? And I like to say, yes. There's the far north end of the throne, the governmental complex of the New Jerusalem, and there's the far south end down on the millennial earth. But it's one gigantic governmental complex. And the water that flows in the New Jerusalem, oh my, look at this. Ezekiel 47. That water makes its way into the millennial earth through the temple, through the millennial temple. We don't know where, how, where the connect point is. We don't need to know that. All we know is that water comes out of the temple. Whoa. But it's supernatural water. It heals everything it touches. There's never been water like this. And Ezekiel sees it. And you can read Ezekiel 47 on your own, the whole thing. I'm just highlighting a couple little aspects of that water. Because this water flowing on the millennial earth, okay, Touching the, the soil, touching the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is dead. It heals the Dead Sea when it touches it. All the desert area around Jerusalem in the Middle East, I mean, those several hundred miles all the way around, desert, desert, hundreds of miles of desert, it blossoms like a rose. That water with those leaves and that sun, whoa. It just becomes profuse, abundant in productivity. Well, let's read what Ezekiel said when that river of life from the New Jerusalem makes its way through the Jerusalem temple. And again, we don't know how, how the pipes connect, but we know it, it comes through. Look at verse one. There was water flowing from the millennial temple. Verse five, it's a river along the bank of the river. Many trees, wait a second. Around Jerusalem, a couple hundred miles, it's all desert. I mean, particularly to the east and the south. Desert, it's horrible. I mean, very, very severe desert. Very many trees. Wow, where did that come from? Well, it's the water. Well, the leaves, too. And when, verse 8, it reaches the Dead Sea, is what it's talking about, it heals the Dead Sea. It heals the Mediterranean Sea. 
it makes its way to the other to, to the oceans. I have no doubt that the kings somehow bring this to their nation or just through the evaporation process and the winds blow and the clouds move and it rains, there's that supernatural water in the mix. Covers the earth, heals the oceans. I'm throwing that part in myself. But we know it heals the waters right around Jerusalem and the deserts. Not only are there many trees in the deserts, verse 9, there's very great multitude of fish. There's so many fish that these fish are growing big and fast and they're just like superfoods. I mean, that's kind of funny, but it's real, actually. And I'm setting this up because I'm showing you the power of this light, these trees, and this water on the millennial earth because we're going to take it to the next step after that in just a minute. Just keep your seatbelt on. <laughs> Verse 9, everything will live where that river touches. All kinds of trees in those deserts, those, those hundreds of miles of deserts, and it's for foods. I mean, healthy, delicious. And their leaves are medicine. They heal physical bodies in the millennium. People with natural bodies in the millennium. They heal rivers. They heal animals. They heal agriculture. They heal the soil. They heal the atmosphere. The combination of these three bring healing and the combination together. Paragraph E. Well, just to say it all again, because we're kind of going fast here, and, but, I, but I think you could follow it and say, huh, really? Some of you say, you know, I kind of needed a message like this just after a year like this. I just need to look up and go, oh, I love your leadership. Wonderful. That is your name. It's wonderful. Paragraph E. So this, the light, the trees, and the water, the combination of the three, and again, there might be several other elements besides these three. They're the only three mentioned at the end of the biblical narrative. They contribute to the healing of the millennial earth. The atmosphere gets healed, clean atmosphere. The water gets healed all over the earth. The soil gets healed. The vegetation, the agriculture, the food, the fish, the animals, the people, just whatever, whatever, just keeps healing. And, of course, the net result of that, the economy is healed. I mean, just everything gets healed in the fruit of these, these three components being manifest. Here's what I'm suggesting. that I, Well, I believe this strongly just from other Bible verses, that the conditions of the Garden of Eden, they will start in Jerusalem. They'll be restored, and they'll spread progressively through the water, the light, and the leaves throughout the earth. It'll take a thousand years, but the whole earth will be like the Garden of Eden. I mean, there might be this one area that isn't in that one area. So I don't mean the hundred percent in the strictest way, but the vast, vast majority of the earth will be like the Garden of Eden. Here's my suggestion: those same three supernatural components that heal the millennial earth, they will be able to heal any of the hostile environments of any of the planets on the earth. Go to Mars, very hostile environment. Man, no water, no sun, no, I don't really know much about Mars. 
I don't really study Elon Musk and all of that stuff, but anyway. But I'm, I'm guessing it's horrible. Food's not good, animals aren't healthy. I mean, it's horrible up there. Now, this is me saying this. What if the Lord says, how hard do you think it will be for my water, my light, and my seeds to change that hostile environment? I'm the Genesis 1 God. This is no problem to me. I can do that easy. What if these three components are available, which I think they will be, to the saints for millions and billions of years to bring to the whole created order, the whole known universe and beyond? I don't know what's beyond. I don't even know what that meant. I figure in a billion years there'll be a lot more we know than we know now. Let's go to the top of page three. Well, I'm gonna give a few more hints. I'm just gonna throw out some random verses without taking a lot of time on each one of them. Just throw them out there, just kind of rapid fire. Because my real takeaway, here's my real takeaway. I'm gonna give it to you 10 minutes in advance, 15 minutes in advance. My real takeaway is at the very end, it's worth it. <laughs> it's worth obeying him. It's worth serving him. It's an indescribable story. It's hard. It's not worth it. It's worth it. That's my takeaway, but I'll go back to the page three. When I see this storyline, I don't know how much of it is exactly, I mean, along the lines of all that I'm saying, but I think it's along these lines. Well, let's go back to the fat foundational truth again. Paragraph A. The hidden wisdom, the plan that God had. Again, you've got to read the whole passage. Open your Bible and read the whole passage. God ordained this hidden plan before the ages for the glory of his people. It's never entered the heart of a man. These things God's already prepared even before Adam and Eve were created. Paragraph B. David kind of leaned over the kind of leaned over the edge and hinted at this in Psalm 8. He said, "Oh Lord, how excellent is your name." Again, that's your name is wonderful. Counselor, it's wonderful. He goes, "You set your glory above the stars. It's not just in the stars or in the sky above it." You have a realm of glory that is far superior, far more powerful than even what we see when we look up at the sky. At the sky. Verse three, now notice he says, when I consider the heavens. The heavens is the sky right above us and the heavens is the, the, the stars we see at night. We only see, you know, a, a thousandth of one percent of all the stars. That, I mean, we see it's such a fraction of a small percent. But he looked up, and he said, the heavens, he defined the heavens as the work of God's fingers. In other words, there's God's precision in forming each star. In a couple of verses where he names every star, he puts it in its place, his fingers, the intricacy of his care for every one of the stars. And there's trillions and trillions and trillions of stars. But they were the work of his fingers. He says, when I look at them, 
The question that hits me, verse four, and you wanna know why is he asking this question when he looks at the stars? What is man that you're so mindful? Your mind is filled with thoughts of the human race. You're mindful of him. When I look at the intricacy of your care for the stars, the work of your hands, I wanna know why you care so much about us that he says in verse six, you gave dominion over all the works of your hands to man. Now it doesn't take a lot of thinking that the work of his fingers and the work of his hands is the same work. David is saying, I see the stars. In verse three, the work of your fingers, then in verse six, you gave the whole work of your hands under man's authority ultimately. David, what are you saying? David might say, uh, I, I'm not sure, that just came out. <laughs> I don't know exactly what that means. I, I can't imagine David under, having much understanding of that. And then David makes it crystal clear. You put everything under man's feet. Not just the earth, even the heavens. You put everything under man's feet. Redeemed. Human beings. Paragraph C. Well, Paul agreed with David. First Corinthians 3, Paul says, all things, all things belong to the redeemed. All of them do. He said, whether it's Paul and Apollos or Cephas, which is Peter, that's one of Peter's names, meaning, you know, one group said, oh, Paul's our main guy. The other group says, Apollos is our, Paul says, stop. All of us belong to all of you. Matter of fact, everything belongs to you. Everything in the world. It's all ultimately yours. You don't see it yet. Just give it a few minutes. Just give it a little bit of time. You'll have your resurrected body. The millennium will come and go and the new earth and you'll see everything will be openly displayed as under you. He says life or death. Death itself you will find will end up serving God's purpose in your life. What? All things present. Here he says it here. All things yet to come are still yours. Well, in Psalm 8, I just looked at it. David said, all things are under man. Again, the redeemed is what we're talking about because they're under Christ. Paragraph D, Paul went on to say in Romans 4, Abraham was the heir of the world and the, the, the Greek word that, it, that uh, Paul used was Abraham is the heir of the cosmos. Paragraph E, we're still in Romans. Paul taught, look at this glorious passage. You could read the whole thing on your own, but I just wanted to catch it here. Creation is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God, which means the resurrected saints. He's waiting for the saints to get resurrected bodies, have supernatural bodies, and to be with Jesus with, with a resurrected body. For the creation was subject to futility. When Adam sinned, a death sentence came on the whole created order. Creation itself, when we get our resurrected bodies and when the full purpose of God is happening, creation itself will be delivered from corruption, completely delivered from it. Creation will enter into the glorious liberty of the resurrected saints, the, created, the creation itself and the resurrected saints will have a connection and they will have a harmony together 
and they will have a likeness. I mean, they'll be moving in the power of the Holy Spirit or experiencing the manifest power of the Spirit. Then Paul goes on, and here's the phrase I want you to see, verse 22. He says, well, the creation's groaning, but he adds the word, the whole creation is groaning. Not just the earth, not just the animals. The very cosmos is groaning, but one day it won't be groaning. There's so much death and darkness in the cosmos, in the whole uh, arrangement of the stars and so many collisions. and There's glory and beauty, but there's all kinds of other stuff too. My science was like seventh grade, so I'm gonna leave it there. Let the reader understand, okay. Paragraph F. I, I get so excited about this, I gotta remember, I don't know anything about science and anything. <laughs> I'm an Isaiah guy, you know, I study Isaiah and Jeremiah, and I trust you other, some of my friends to tell me this stuff. Look at this, Paul calls what we're gonna enter into, I mean, it's in us now, but it's not in any way fully manifest. He called it the exceeding greatness of power. And we kind of get used to reading these big terms, phrases like this from Paul, and kind of assuming maybe he's exaggerating, he's not. Exceeding greatness of power is what you received in the Holy Spirit. We don't walk in it in a manifest way, just a little bit of it. And we want to walk in more of it and more of it, but I'm talking about in the billion year, through the lens of the next billion years, we're only touching a little bit of it. And we want to double that and double it again and double it again. But a billion years, we'll look back and say, oh my goodness. We had no idea who we received when he came to live in our spirit, the Holy Spirit. Well, it's exceeding power, and it's towards or in the lives of believers, okay? Exceedingly great power in the life of a believer, okay? And this power is corresponding to the power when God raised Jesus from the dead, seated him at the right hand of the Father. The measure of power that the Father used when he raised Jesus from the dead, that's the power that will operate in the saints forever. I mean, we see some healings here and there, so people get saved, and some blessed circumstances happen, and the Lord says, no, way, way beyond that will be the way that you live forever. He says he exalted Jesus, verse 21, above everything. Verse 22, he put everything under his feet. But here's the verse that you see. Then he gave Jesus to the church. So Jesus has all authority over everything, and the Father says, I'm giving you to the church, so now the church is your body, so whatever you've received in your reign and leadership over the cosmos and the earth, you're gonna do it through your hands and feet, the body of Christ, and it's through them your fullness will fill everything. Lots of folks that could read this and say exceeding great power, that's a little exaggerated, towards us who believe, I don't know what that means, it's in our life, because Jesus has it all, but the Father gave him to the body. He gave him to us, but not just, hey, he's your bridegroom king, he loves you, you love him, you serve him, because with way more than that, there's a dynamic connectedness to where what he is and wants, I mean, I mean uh, his mandate and his destiny and ruling, he's gonna do it through the arms and legs of humans that are his. 
and it's through them he will fill the fullness of everything. He doesn't need to. He wants to. Jesus doesn't need to do it through us. He wants to. It was the Father's hidden plan before the ages that it would be this way. The question is, who are you? No, really. Do you have any idea who you are? We, we don't. I mean, we know we're in Christ. So we don't hardly understand the most simple tr implications of that. I mean, we do a little bit, and it changes our life, but I'm talking about the billion-year picture. Look at paragraph G. Jesus is the heir of the worlds. Plural. Different translations use different words there, but a bunch of translations use the word worlds. Paragraph H. This is just a thought. Genesis 1, God spoke. He created the heavens and the earth. The, the, the heavens doesn't just mean the sky, all the star, all of that. Billions of galaxies. Or millions, at least. I don't know the number, of course. He spoke. Here's my question. Because the word of God is living. It's powerful. When he spoke, did the word lose its life and power after a week, a year, a thousand years? Or is that word still moving forward? It's living. It's powerful. Scientists say that the universe is continuing to expand. How is the universe expanding? It might be. Genesis 1, Jesus spoke, and the word is still moving. It's powerful. When did it stop being powerful, those words? Do his words ever fall to the ground? What? We don't know all the details of this. Paragraph, page 4. The Milky Way galaxy, paragraph I, contains our solar system, right? They say the conservative estimate, 100 billion stars. That, I mean, we don't even know what that means. 100 billion stars in our galaxy. The next sentence Experts vary in their opinions, but the lowest number that I have found among experts today is there's a hundred million galaxies of which the Milky Way is one of the smaller ones. So you got the Milky Way, a hundred billion stars, but there's a hundred million of these galaxies. Some scientists are very adamant it's far bigger than that. I go, you know what, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good with 100 billion stars and 100 million galaxies. Okay. What's going to happen? Why did God create them? I don't have the definitive answer, but I know one thing. God's got a plan before the ages for the glory of his people in partnership with his son whose government will never, ever, ever decrease. It will always increase. It will never stop increasing. Paragraph J, 
Scientists today estimate there are 8 million living species on the planet right now, 8 million. I checked this with a number of sources, and that's kind of a, some say more, some say less. I mean, because it's an estimation. Because scientists have only cataloged 2 million of the 8 million. You say, how do they know the other 6 million? I don't know. Eight million, but that's the uh, a commonly uh, estimated number. Eight million species. And I got a little bit of detail on it there. The three basic categories. So you kind of get your mind around it. Here's my point, K, paragraph K. Why did God create eight million species on the earth? And it might be a more than that, maybe less than that. Again, over a million or two is like, a, it's way out of my mindset. Well, you know, he's a king. He's an architect. He's a city builder. He's a scientist. He's a mathematician, but he's more. He's an artist. He's a creator. At the core of his being, he creates. Eight million species and Approximately six million we haven't cataloged yet with all the brilliant scientific knowledge. And the Lord just says, yeah, I just, I just create. It's who I am. So the question is, will that part of his nature ever stop? Did he create in Genesis 1 and stop for the next billion, billion years? He doesn't create anymore. He just shut down that part of his personality. I really doubt it. <laughs> Paragraph L. I don't get sad, so people get really sad about this. In the resurrection, there's not marriage. And the point I'm making is there's not the procreation of human beings. But the bigger point I'm making is Billions of years, humans are only multiplied for 7,000 years out of billions. There's 6,000 years between Adam and now, approximately, some will debate more or less, and a thousand year millennium, call it 7,000 ish, a little bit more, a little bit less. This infinitely small window of time where humans were born. And then never again after that. Here's my question. How did you receive the blessing to be one of those humans born in that infinitely small window of time where humans were multiplied? You need to look in the mirror and look at your friends and family and your children and cousins and aunt and just say, you're a moron. A million years from now, the 7,000 years, the window's closed. No more humans are made. I mean, that's a, that's a thought to behold. The whole plan, not the whole plan, but the plan was a key part of the plan was for the glory of that small number of humans in that small amount of time compared to billions of years. They would reign with Jesus as a human. 
God sovereignly chose you to be born. Isn't that a remarkable? How did you get in that window of time? You know, a baby, this is a little philosophical here, paragraph M. A baby's in its mother's womb, right? It's fully human. The whole nine months, the baby's fully human. But the baby has no idea who they are or what they are. That little four-year-old little baby of theirs, like, that's it. They're fully human, though, but they don't have a clue who they are or what they are. Now I'm taking it up a notch. It's not a perfect comparison, but you'll get the idea. Our 70 years on the earth, compared to the billion, the billion, 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 we're still in the womb of life. We hardly have any idea who we are or what we are. We see more than that four-month-old baby, but compared to 10 or 20,000 million or two years from now, we're gonna say we didn't know hardly anything. We didn't hardly know who, who we were. And we were so prone to give up and to give in and to cave in. We didn't have a clue who we were. Beloved, the gift of eternal life makes your life epic. And the devil is a liar. Your life is epic. So paragraph N, we go back to Genesis 1. God creates Adam and Eve. He says, I'm giving you dominion over the earth. This is my theory. Could be wrong, but I think I'm right. Father says, you'll have dominion over the earth. Like, whoa, to these humans, Adam and Eve and all their offspring. Then I'm making this part up. Then he whispers to the angels. That's just the beginning of the story. They have no idea what they're going to have dominion over. It starts with the earth. My theory is that we're going to see the Garden of Eden kind of conditions-ish Again, higher, lower, whatever, fill the created order for billions of years. You can't be sure. But I know one thing is government's never, ever going to stop increasing. And I know the stars of the heavens is where his glory is in those stars and above. And I know that everything in the future belongs to us. And the cosmos was the inheritance of Abraham. And God's put all things under our feet. And I know that he said in Revelation 22, there's supernatural light, supernatural water, supernatural trees, and it's connected to the reign of the saints forever. I think there's going to be an endless combination of those three things. The light, the trees, the water. Endless combination of them with the natural components and elements of various planets and universes. Who knows the endless combination, but it will just go on and on and on. And so what is God creating if he's not creating humans? The answer is, I don't know. I know that around the heavenly, in the heavenly realm, there are angels that have a face like an ox, but they talk. Wow. We've never seen a talking oxen. Some have the face of an eagle, some a lion, all kinds of different forms. 
Is God going to keep making them? I don't know. I just can't imagine his creative nature stopping in one little fragment of time, just the time of the natural realm of the earth, and then he quits it. No more creating for billions of years. I don't know what he's going to create, but I know whatever is created, the saints will rule with him forever and forever. So paragraph O, here's how I imagine it, and I might be wrong. Again, you can't be dogmatic on this. You can get hints, follow the hints, but you gotta hold it soft. Some guy says, you wanna debate it? No, I don't wanna debate it. But when I close my eyes and the world is hard and I see Jesus, wonderful, you can't stop me going there. It's gonna be forever it's worth it well i see the you know in the millennium the new jerusalem is the key city to the millennial earth what if the earth is like the new jerusalem to the whole created order what if the earth is the holy of holies of the created order at the end of the millennium and the glory of God just moves on and on and on. And the saints, that very small number, I mean some billions, but compared to billions of years, they are in that priestly row of mediating and hosting and expressing the presence of God to the created order from the holy of holies of the new earth forever and forever ruling with Jesus. What if that's part of the story? I'm sure some of the stuff I'm saying isn't exactly right, but I'm sure that what I'm suggesting is way lower than what's actually true. So we'll end with this. My point, Jesus is worthy. He's the wonderful counselor. Radical love to him, radical obedience, even unto death. We lose everything because of our love and obedience. The pressure increases. Paul said it here. This puts it a little different light on this. He goes, our light affliction. I mean, he was beaten with rods, put in prison, stoned. Our light affliction, ooh, is but a moment. 70 years on the earth, you know, 80 due to strength, Moses said. It's working for us. Catch this phrase, a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. I don't know how words could push that further. A far more exceeding weight of glory that lasts forever is working in us. When we obey him, every movement of our heart, every cup of cold water, it moves him and he records it in his book and he responds to us on that day according to the heart of obedience. We said, beloved, it's worth it. It's worth it. Amen. Let's just stand before the Lord. Merry Christmas. I can't wait. We will wait. We're all going to be faithful. Okay? But, oh, that is awesome where we're going. But this is who you are right now. It's not who you're going to be. It's your story now. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Oh, yeah, we're going to call our interns up, aren't we? Let's have the interns. 
Is that the rules come stand in the front? All of our interns come stand in the front. Or one thing, interns. You're going home tomorrow, right? Okay, yeah. Come on. Come on up here. See, some of you just spread out across the front on, and stand on those lines. Yeah, just spread out across. You, you see those lines, those carpet lines? There you go, just spread out. Some in the front line, some in the second line. Just so you're spread out a little bit. Go ahead. Take, take a few steps. <laughs> there you go. That's right. Branch out there. Now, you know, here, you know what's so odd? They've been here four months and COVID. No one's ever been up front. We've been here 21 years and we've never had a meeting where everybody wasn't up front. <laughs> so we just got opposite realities. That's right, we haven't been up front for four months or some number like that. Father, we're just gonna pray for a moment and then we're gonna have some folks come up and lay your hands on them and bless them, whoever wants to. But we'll, we'll wait a minute on that. We're just gonna... Father, here we are before you. His ambassadors 
just his presence everywhere you go. As faithful witnesses of Jesus, as the anointed of the Lord, go forth in the name of Jesus. gift of everyone that you've brought to this house for such a time as this. Lord, tonight we just are grateful. These are the excellent ones on the earth in whom is all your delight. And Lord, I ask you, even tonight as they begin the packing and the moving and the transition out, Lord, I ask that you would draw near to them, that you would rest upon them, 
Lord, from this place, we commission them in the name of Jesus to all the different cities across this nation represented here and the nations of the earth. And we ask you, Lord, that through them, you would mark hearts, that through them, you would set your spirit mightily in the nations of the earth. God, I ask that through them, you would set a witness as you said you would in the nations. We love you, Lord. say thank you for everything you've done, everything you've spoken to these interns. Your spirit. 